This is a Federal News Network podcast. A rainy day fund at the State Department has dried up during COVID-19. The Bureau of Consular Affairs is drawing down carryover funds from previous years and may take years to replenish, even if passports and visa fees fully bounce back from the pandemic. For an update, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. And Jory, this is a self-funding program we're talking about. Tell us more. Yeah, so the Bureau of Consular Affairs relies on a couple of different streams of revenue here. And this is a major one. It's revenues generated from passports, visas, and other things. It really took a major hit during the start of the COVID-19 pandemic when many Americans were discouraged from traveling abroad, of course. And that resulted in a 41% decline in consular revenue fee in 2020 compared to the prior year. And this is not just the only stream of funding the This is not just the only stream of funding the Bureau relies on here. It also got about $500 million from Congress, both in emergency COVID funds as well as annual appropriations to keep going and offset this loss of revenue. All right. And how has that impacted then the reserve funds? Because sounds like they're dipping into the capital. They are dipping into it. And the Government Accountability Office is raising some alarm bells. The Bureau ended fiscal 2019 with about $2 billion in this fund. That was enough to cover about half of its costs for that year. Now the Bureau is getting close to a billion dollars, and it's going to keep going down even under the GAO's best estimates for revenue for years to come. That's not enough of a cushion that GAO warns should be enough to be around for the Bureau to cover other emergencies and contingencies. But let me just ask a devil's advocate question. Did this come up in any of their deliberations? If the revenue is down, it's because people are requiring fewer passports or fewer visas. There's less application activity. Is there any way that the agency can trim its costs to reflect the business it actually has? Well, the State Department is thinking out loud on a couple of reform efforts here. You know, one thing is that the State Department doesn't get to keep all of the revenue it collects from passports. You know, for example, it costs $130 for an adult to renew their passport these days. The State Department only gets to keep about 100 of those dollars. The rest of it goes to the Treasury Department for their general fund, which really funds the day-to-day operations of the federal government more generally. And what about raising prices? Suppose a passport went to 150 and then the State Department got their 130 and then $20 could go down the street to the Treasury. Right. That's always on the table, too. And that is something else the Bureau and the Department is considering. The $130 price that I just threw out there is a new price. It's a relatively new price for that service, and it could very well go up in the years to come. And getting back to the reality of what's going on here now, they are modeling how soon they might be able to replenish those funds with what the activity is on passports and visas? Right. The GAO drew up several models to forecast how the Bureau's revenue might look over the coming years, with some looking more pessimistic and some looking more optimistic in terms of how quickly the Bureau can bounce back from COVID. And even under its most optimistic modeling here, the GAO said that The Bureau's carryover balance will continue to deplete over the coming years. And by 2026, the fund will drop below that billion-dollar mark, might get actually below $800 million. And that is an alarm bell the GEO is raising there. Yeah, so the water is going out of the dam faster than the rain is pouring it back in. Is there a fix the State Department would ask Congress for? Yes, the State Department for years and years as part of its budget request have called on Congress to make statutory fixes to, you know, look at other ways the department could maybe keep more of its revenue that it collects 
or have greater flexibility to spend the revenue that it does keep. There are some lines of revenue the State Department has broad discretion on how it gets to spend, but there's other lines of revenue from visas and things of that nature where the Bureau is committed to spend that on border security, for example. Congress so far has not acted on any of these. You seem to cover all of the agencies that need congressional fixes, like USPS, which finally got theirs, the Postal Service. Now State Department seems to be next for this kind of detailed attention. There are a number of squeaky wheels in the federal government. Let's put it that way. All right. And, of course, a lot of this information is because of the State Department's own ability to read the data on its programs, and they're looking to hire some more data experts. What else are you reporting there, too? Yeah, this is a major initiative. The State Department is going on a hiring surge for data scientists, and this is building off of some momentum we saw last year from an effort led by the Office of Personnel Management. They had a government-wide data scientist initiative. The State Department was about the State Department was about one of 10 agencies that participated in that program. The State Department was actually the agency that hired the most data scientists from that effort. They hired about 25 to 30, and they continue to have demand for these people with this talent. Case in point here, they are now launching their own standalone hiring effort using a process we're hearing more and more these days, the subject matter expert qualification assessments. The famous MIQA. Rolls right off the tongue. And it is a process where data scientists actually get to sit in on the culling of applications and selecting of applicants. I sat down with Joel Dante, the chief data scientist over at the State Department, and he told me that SMEQA is just a more efficient process to get this done. We tend to get a higher number of candidates through the process that are actually good fits as referenced by, you know, being selected by hiring managers for those positions. So I think from both perspectives, it does a better job of matching the right applicants, the right candidates to the right jobs. And any ideas of the types of projects those people might actually work on once they get in there? It can be a lot of things. 18 bureaus are participating in this data scientist hiring effort. So any number of things. And they might look for certain candidates with certain skills, obviously, depending on the opening. But Nante told me that there are two major efforts from the agency's equity data strategy that he wanted to highlight, and that is competition with China, whether that can be global arms race around artificial intelligence, research and development, facial recognition. That's a pretty broad bucket overall. Another effort is more internal looking. The State Department's Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer is really wanting to pour over the data, understand the barriers that prevent a broader cross-section of the agency, a more diverse cross-section of the agency, moving on up into the agency's higher ranks and its more desirable positions. All right. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out both of his stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? 
So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then Let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.